is a way of leading to our proper motivation, cultivation of the proper motivation for this session. I would like to bring your attention to what we just said in the recitation. Do not commit any non-virtuous actions. Perform only perfect virtuous actions. Subdue your mind completely. This is the teaching of the Buddha. Let's try to break this down into the steps it is pointing us to, as well as the hope of change for the better that is embedded within us. Let that be identified. And let this boost our curiosity to learn more, explore more, and see the truth in these lines. By the way, as you all recall, this is a stanza that appears both in the Dhammapada, in Pali, as well as in Udana work in Sanskrit source, particularly in the Pali context, this verse comes together with two other verses, two other stanzas. The three stanzas together make an episode which has a background of the the Thera Ananda asking Buddha. when it comes to the fundamental essence of the teachings, is there any difference in what you are teaching and what the Buddhas in the past have taught? There, Buddha quotes these three stanzas, or rather says, expresses these three stanzas. And it so happened that all these three stanzas are ascribed to three other Buddhas of the past, among the seven that are quoted in our Dharmaguptaka, Pratimoksha Sutra, as well as in the Mulasarvastivadin Pratimoksha Sutra. I recently had the chance to not quite compare the two with both of them side by side, but comparing them by way of going through them wholly separately and thus recalling to mind what are the differences. There hardly is any difference except for the number of precepts, but then when it comes to concluding the Sutra, it quotes seven Buddhas, all of them of the past, except for Shakyamuni Buddha of the present time. And there, all these 
seven senses include this one in particular. There it reads, this is the teaching of the Buddhas. It's not just the teaching of the Buddha Shakyamuni, but the Buddhas of the past, and will be the teaching of the Buddhas in the future as well. They may differ in details as well as in how much deep they may go in sharing with the sentient beings, because it has to resonate with them, with their talent, with their ability, with their karma, all of that. So differences in terms of what teaching is in one Buddha's teaching and what is not there may be possible, but when it comes to the fundamental teachings, it comes down to this. And it has to do with the fundamental question of our rightful, justified, yet unfulfilled quest for lasting peace, happiness, and lasting freedom from suffering. For which Buddha teaches us, if that's what you really want, you have to have your acts together by not committing non-virtuous actions and by performing virtuous actions to the extent possible with all integrated factors, aspects complete to the extent possible at one's given stage. One may complain even if one intellectually knows that that's what one has to do, and one can even intellectually see how not giving in to the afflictions and not falling for them in terms of engaging in non-virtuous actions would definitely keep one from getting into more trouble, not just in the society, but even personally, inwardly, privately. Likewise, performing virtuous actions to the extent possible or complete at one's given stage definitely is the best way to go about dealing with the situations. Yet at the same time, one is not able to really act this out when it comes to the situations. So one may wonder why. Or that the answer comes, it's all due to your mind being not tamed, not subdued. So work to subdue your mind to the extent possible at a given stage and pursue it till you have completely tamed it, till you have completely under your control. But in the meantime, Every step, in the direct, every step in the direction of subduing your mind, understanding that the acts are mere expressions of the mind. And in the world of the mind, in the realm of the mind, one has more say than one might have expected, one might have imagined. But because of having been habituated in the wrong 
wrong direction, in the direction of the negativities, in the direction of the afflictions. Having held them high, always listen to their commands, just sheepishly followed them, even blindly believed in the self-centered attitude, in the commands of the self-centered attitude, in the directions of them, as well as in the directions of the self-grasping attitude for so long. It would be an easy task, but it is definitely not just worth trying, but the only way out. So, even if it may sound like a tall order to subdue the mind completely, that's what's doable, and that's what must be done. At least one must make the first step. That's the essence of the teachings of all the Buddhas, for all embodied beings, beings embedded with mind, with the capacities of undergoing suffering, capacities of undergoing experiencing joy, happiness. So long as one is sentient in this way, the crux lies in subduing the mind, no other way, no external quick fix, as track is going to be able to do that. It may at the very best give temporary relief, but only to make oneself even deeper steeped in the mire of suffering. And in the meantime, never having developed one's own potential, always becoming even more dependent, yet the situation not getting better. This is the situation of us. And it has been like this. Even looking at our situation right now, having met with Dharma, how much is our mind with the Dharma? How qualitatively different our minds are when on cushion and off cushion. Even on cushion, while on cushion, how tamed the mind is, how stable the mind is, how disciplined the mind is. So it's high time to discipline oneself, discipline the mind, take this precious human rebirth, make the most of it, in really dealing with the crux of the problem, not just on, with, the, with those on the periphery or outside of us thinking, hoping, a quick fix, without at all dealing with the mind. From our own small experiences, we, get, we have seen how, be that in the form of commitments, be that in the form of resolutions, be that in the form of having made a pledge in, the, in front of one's teachers, or not, and one tries hard to stay mindful. Over time, things do change. 
the one situation that always trigger anger all the time turned out to be a different one would have developed more resilience, more patience, even more presence in responding to it, more smartly, positively. So we have this hope, and as a spiritual practitioner, so intent sincerely in the practices, it's best. Our own experiences can, can be testimony to this possibility of change for the better. That's all dedicated. This session to learn even more deeply into this. Spiritual wonder. And be inspired to share this with others. And in pursuing to do so, the best way we can perform that is by pursuing our own personal awakening to the fullest potential. thereby will be of the best use for sentient beings in need. Of course, in the meantime also, we should as well be doing as much as we can. That should be part and parcel of our spiritual journey. And that will boost our advancement, our development, our In the Buddhist terms, such an attitude, smart, open, comprehensive, all-inclusive, All assuring of a better future is called bodhicitta. Intent to see one's full potential developed so that one could be of the best benefit in the truest sense of the word all other mothers and beings. Let's stay for a while in this mental mode of bodhicitta, even if it be a contrived one. Mold mind into a bodhicitta type, looking up to aspire to achieve full awakening oneself, which means seeing all one's positive potentials 
come to full culmination under the weight of which none of the negativities would stand even the slightest chance of opening up its head, let alone that by then it would have been completely irritated. May I achieve full awakening for the benefit of all such beings. Was that end? May this session contribute to each other and even beyond. in pointing oneself and others to this possibility, to this gift that we are embedded with, all from the very beginning, which would always remain with us. But merely having the gift wrapped up, never opened, not going to be a benefit. We have to make the steps to open, keep unwrapping, and use it to the fullest possible. Put it to the best possible use. Okay, so the last time I kind of jumped to the end of the chapter, so I left some parts there. I will go back to that, and related to that, there are some questions that I want to respond to, build into the presentation. Oh, yeah. I kept bringing my laptop all these times, never had the chance to use it. Maybe today it will come to use. Yeah, so about this topic, we are looking at page 279. We have gone through that, read through that also, but I'll just uh, look at that. The opening lines in the paragraphs and then move to the rest of it. So with regard to this basic and true nature of the mind is pure, particularly if we stick to the sutra level of understanding, this, this purity is understood in two terms, two ways. One from the mind's nature, one's, one from the conventional aspect, conventional angle, another from the ultimate angle. 
in both of these respects, the basic nature of the mind could be called pure, uncorrupted, even in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of confusion. The mind's nature is not corrupted. That's the reason why the outer layers of afflictions, however thick they may be, they are able to be removed. But only if we make efforts, it's not going to go away by itself. That's not one. That that's that's the only exception to come, come, go, go. Well, it does come and go in its way, in one sense, but. Don't hope for it to just, don't hope for the afflictions to come and go once forever, no? It will come and then go, it may, but only to come. But only to come, always. Unless until we make effort in having, making sure that they are gone forever and we have closed the door on them, <laughs> sealed them with the cessation. And for that, the means, of course, it has to be supported by love, compassion, concern for others, discipline, morality, concentration, practice, whatnot. But at the tip, tipping point, at the top point of that tool, lies the wisdom of understanding emptiness, the truth of wisdom, understanding the emptiness directly. And in the end, ultimately, it has to be true that that this door can be locked once forever for the afflictions from entering into our mind. So, in that respect, there are two questions, two qualities of the mind itself, given, given qualities, to which we call purity, quality of purity, the quality of being uncorrupted by afflictions, uncorrupted by anything, anything uh, deficient. And that, as I said, one is from the conventional sense, in the sense that the mind's very basic nature of being mind, which is of being aware and, in a way, aware in a subjective sense, as well as aware by being reflective, by being reflective of the objects that it comes across or that is brought to it. So in that, and that is the conventional nature. In that respect, all instances of mind, even including mental factor, they all share in this quality. By the way, mental factors are not to be seen as something totally different from mind, but rather they are to be seen as aspects of the mind. Of a, at a particular given time, there would always be a mind to which there would be certain aspects or certain facets that would have been that would have been activated, that would have been more pronounced, more more, more expressed. That's what is recognized as this particular emotion, this particular mental factor at a given time. But that's also shares in this very basic quality of being pure and unscathed by any corruption, any negativities. 
So this we usually see, usually understand in the through the example of gold, right? The gold it itself, the very nature of gold is uncorrupted, we may say to a certain extent. And even if it is found in dirts and it's mixed with dirts, but the, the dirts are all separable. By that we do not necessarily have to lose gold. So even in physical world also we have certain examples like this. And likewise many of the, what you call the filtering things, filtering mechanisms, uh, they are all similar in speaking of what something that looked like being mixed with it is separable and thus its own purity can be revealed. And in that respect, mind has the greatest, uh, what do you call, potential in being pure, purified in such a way that could not only make the mind pure or its purity revealed, but make a whole world of difference to the person to whom that mind belongs, in the sense of being becoming fully omniscient, fully compassionate, fully loving, etc. Now it's it's unimaginable to think of what the mind can become. And this reminds me of Venerable Tarpa's sharing in the BBC of how just imagining what a Buddha's mind looks like when it comes to compassion, when it comes to wisdom, when it comes to tolerance, all of these practices, when you try to kind of imagine and kind of assess, imagine, feel what that might look, what that might feel like, what that might look like, it's really mind-boggling. I mean, as much as, I mean, for me, as much as I say, may all sentient beings be happy, but not, unless and until I'm in that very particular aware moment in really pushing the mind in kind of adopting it. The rest of the time, awareness of all sentient beings, let alone all sentient beings, all human beings of this planet, Earth, it, it, it really occurs. And it really stays with me. But mind can be developed in such a way that those would become the most common everyday aspect of the mind. So the other aspect of its purity, as I said, is from the ultimate angle. That is saying that the mind itself is empty of inherent existence. And that That is not just a philosophical discovery of what the mind is, but it is very much connected with, connected to our prospects of joy and happiness, to our condition of being suffering. Because all the sufferings, be that physical, mental, whatever, they are rooted in afflictions. In between, there might be actions, karmas. But in 
as a source, but prior to the karmic action, there are the afflictions. And all these afflictions cannot stand without the base of an inherently existing and without the base of a grasping at inherent existence. It is their lifeline. Although we usually say, yes, in the face of compassion, there you, you cannot generate anger. In the face of loving-kindness, you cannot generate hatred towards someone. Same is the case with the understanding of emptiness, with the exposing of this grasping at inherent existence with regard to all other all other afflictions irrespective whereas in the case of the prior pair of antidotes and the opponents they're really limited right things that work against hatred Cannot, may not work against attachment. Things that antidotes that may work against attachment may not work against hatred. And so goes with the list. Right? It's almost like looking for a, a particular individual antidotes to deal with them. And they are limited. They are powerful, but they are limited. In to just those individual afflictions because they do not address the root of the afflictions. They, they deal with a secondary level, say secondary layer of the conditions of the affliction, not the root of the affliction itself. It's almost like dealing with the painting on the canvas, not with the canvas itself. Canvas still stays there, and some can, some some other arts could still come, right? So, so that's the reason why the empty of inherent existent nature of the mind, which is given, which is there always, just because it's being it's dependently relatedly existent, dependently relatedly produce thing. Because of that, it is not independent. But more than that, it is merely labeled, it's merely designated in that in that what you think it's something, if you look for any kind of contribution from its side, you wouldn't find it. It would have been totally borrowed identity given to it. And it calls itself, it calls that quality itself, or we call that quality as its own quality, but it's totally borrowed. So this nature of mind being devoid of inherent existence is so crucial. And the mind is, from the very beginning, or from time immemorial, pure in that aspect. And this is the same case with everything. But because our struggle, our problems arise and happen from the mind, that identifying this particular 
ultimate nature of the mind is so crucial because that's the ultimate tool that will address these afflictions. So the mind is pure in that respect also. So that's the reason why we have hope if we persist in our efforts to make our mind pure. And because of that, the afflictions are adventitious. They are never the path and person, the very fabric of the mind, so much so that when we address the affliction, we are addressing the, the basic purity nature of it. We are not. We may be lessening anger or whatnot, but the, the mind, the basis of the anger is not lessened, let alone being severed. It can never be. So that's the reason why it is adventitious. And adventitious also in the sense that afflictions, without exception, at least from the Buddhist perspective, not just everything we call affliction in the English term, but this particular term we are using it for, glacier in Sanskrit and Nyomong in Tibetan, these are indispensably dependent on grasping at inherent existence, not necessarily on the grasping at permanence wrongfully, not necessarily at grasping at a self-sufficient person wrongfully, although some can be, but they all necessarily depend, are rooted, are kind of, kind of fed, dependent on this grasping at inherent existence. In some cases, the dependence layer will be more with, with, with the grasping at inherent existence at the very, at the very uh, bottom level, which serves as a basis for generating, uh, seeing wrongfully something impermanent as permanent, and that may give rise to an affliction. That kind of affliction can be more gross and can be dealt with by applying uh, this understanding of things being impermanent. That impermanent understanding will diffuse it. But in uprooting it, it cannot, because it still is. The projection of permanence itself is rooted in the projection of inherent existence. So some afflictions come with these many steps, more steps in the meantime, including grasping at permanence, grasping wrongfully at the dukkha nature of things, grasping wrongfully at the selfless nature of things, gross selfless nature, whatnot. But there can be some which would have only the grasping at inherent existence immediately after that would be a distorted uh, attention, distorted attention, inappropriate attention, and then boom, anger, jealousy, greed. So there, all it has is among, from among the distorted afflictions, among the distorted perceptions, all it has uh, is the grasping at inherent existence, because the grasping at inherent existence at the very bottom which gives rise to the distorted, uh, distorted attention. We're calling it, uh, in Tibetan it's called, last time I said, I, I called it by a different name, but the official name for that, there's official name for that in his passport, uh, is 
again i'm spacing out mm. but yeah but i'm thinking of the tibetan term not change the law change the law is what i said last time hmm? Oh, strange. Yeah. Hmm. Strange. Okay. Anyway, it's and and anyway, and that true itself is also, a, and it's also grasping at inherent existence. Now, earlier it was grasping at inherent existence, and then later it was grasping at inherently. Existent beauty, inherently existent negativity, and then soon after that is attachment or anger, what not. That's how sometimes this, you hear His Holiness the Dalai Lama saying, "Some afflictions share grasping at inherent existence among its circle of mental uh, mental factors with which it uh, what do you call." Shares the, uh, shares the quality of being concomitant. I to go around big circle to come, <laughs> and but other afflictions can have some other, some other of the lesser, less grave, less deep mis. Conceptions or distortions, uh, being kind of uh, mediating between the grasping at inherent existence and the affliction itself. So that's how uh, sometimes against an affliction, the understanding of impermanence is helpful. That's a clear indication that yes, there is a, a grasping at permanence at work in. Boosting that affliction. Likewise, the same case with grasping at self-sufficient self or self-sufficient person, even grasping at permanent, unitary, partless person. In such cases, you can see how understanding them and bringing them into view can deflate them. But it will not work with every afflictions. Some can be subtle, where only the tool to work with is understanding. Emptiness. And it says that once you have an understanding of emptiness in your mind and active, and you retain that, in the face of that, within that mind realm, no afflictions dare to come out. It's off limit for them. So it would be those would be things that one tries to kind of uh, verify and also verify how. How how good my understanding of emptiness is, and see in the face of it, uh, how is affliction fairy? Is affliction is kind of really pushing its way into it? It's say, okay, you, you still have to work on your understanding of emptiness. <laughs> in a way, there are so many other, what do you call? Uh, uh, what do you call other? points to check against 
whether one's understanding is uh, deep enough, close enough, but not in seeing how how at ease you feel with that, how comprehensively can you apply this to everyone? Because when it comes to the understanding of emptiness, it should be applicable to all all things, all phenomena, without exception, including emptiness itself. So if it fits some, it not, it's a it's a clear, it is a clear indication that oh, that's not an emptiness. It's empty of something, but not the emptiness. <laughs> yeah, so that's the reason why there are advantages in that they are visible to be removed, but they will not go at all by themselves. Because we have cared them so much, brought them close to our heart, given the best room in it, <laughs> right? Yeah. And now it's so spoiled. We are so happy to it. It is so spoiled. Not only itself is it is calling that's mine. We are we may be saying that's yours. That's yours for sure. Even our efforts in really kind of getting it out may not may fall short, and it may feel like no threat at all. It may be laughing at us like, oh 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 trying to unseat me, ho, ho, ho. <laughs> Actually, such statements are reflected in Benjen Losung Chuyen's dialogue between the wisdom, understanding, emptiness, and the grasping of inherent existence. It could be really performed as a skit, piece by piece. <laughs> They have this dialogue and say, Oh, who are you? You are a newcomer. I'm here forever. Even the person who says he wants to pursue wisdom and destroy me didn't even come even close. Okay. Yes. Now, but this is something to be verified. Buddha said that. Buddha performed that, he engaged in that, and he pursued in, he succeeded in it. But he cannot impose it on us. That's just not the way things work. And thus we are all almost like on, on our own to begin. And take the journey and test and, and testify it for ourselves. And of course, Buddhas will continue to shower their assistance, their presence, whenever we could access them. And it's all available every time. But these, 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 these things about Buddha's qualities can be fully explained and understood uh, when we kind of uh, pursue, continue pursuing the paths that are shown in the Vajrayana, because they are 
addition to the sutra path, right? And it is good to have some idea of a roadmap. One may start with some idea of this goes there, in between is this, and then one may enrich this, one may add to this as and when one learns more and more and more, so that one becomes, one's what we call GPS, really becomes fully, fully facilitated, like each and every then bump is identified, right? So one could steer one's way through it to their destination. And this, even though one's main work may be at the very, very beginning, but to have an idea of what it looks like ahead, how should the journey look like, and what is very helpful in in adding an element of authenticity and weightage to our aspiration for others to be freed from total suffering and be placed in, in the state of Buddha world. Every time we do that, if we ourselves have some idea of what that looks like, and then if we keep on building on that, kind of break may really make sense that yes, these are the mechanisms, and that's very potent in really in in leading to such a result. The more we are clear on that, the more we can be more genuine and authentic, and also more facilitated, more what you call informed in terms of what the path looks like, how it is possible to aspire for others to also do so. And in our meditation, every time we wish others to be freed from suffering, we could even lead them through those steps. And, and that way, kind of making the meditation more meaningful, more informed, more weighty, more genuine, yet at the same time, making giving oneself Yet another opportunity to reflect on the paths. And so each time we do that, we become more and more and more clearer, clearer about the paths. And, and likewise, any doubts here or there uh, could then come up in a very genuine form. To be addressed, and when addressed, really make a big difference in how we how we uh, undertake our, particularly the, the vajrayana sadhanas, where we say, yes, they are all released, right? How? What does that look like? And and if you have time, you can lead them step by step. So that why, that's 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 how the end aspiration of their culminating in Buddha would, would be kind of supported by reasoning, sense, and clarity. And at the same time, one would have also uh, kind of become more habituated uh, in the path. So last time when I left it, I left it somewhere there. Uh, let's look at page 280. 
the second paragraph, the purest form of mind is the fundamental innate clear light mind. So the term clear light in the Vajrayana brings in yet another layer to it, not undoing the previous ones. Those are all, those are all, uh, all uh, pertinent in, in, uh, conveying the purity of the mind, uh, though at conventional level and fundamental level, at the ultimate level, yet this other one is at the subjective level, though conventional, yet more conventional than, what do you call, more deeper than the sutra conventional nature of the mind. In the sutra conventional nature of the mind, we are speaking of its purity and its awareness. And now here in the Vajrayana sense of uh, this added purity of the mind, we are speaking of not just mind, but the innate mind, and that has not just the quality of being pure and aware, as in others, as in all the rest of the minds, irrespective of how gross they may be, but it is pure in the sense that that is the ultimate, the the most subtle of the minds and the most enduring of the minds. That is the only thing among the minds that has been, that has no beginning and no end, has not been created, nor does it cease. In a way, the, the, the qualities uh, that Buddha spoke of, the, of, of his awakening, uh, soon after his awakening, he looked at his, his, his achievement and he says, this has these qualities of profound peace, free from fabrication, uncompounded or uncreated. In a way, as much as they are applied to the emptiness nature of our mind, likewise, it could be also applied to the subtlest clear light mind. So the subtlest clear light mind is the purest form, the, the purest form, in the sense not just of its nature being unscathed by the afflictions, which is what is shared by all the all the minds, all the forms of minds, including afflictions themselves, afflictions themselves. Right? It's like even in the midst of, in the thick of being angry, and you have a manifest anger, anger mind, angry mind in you, that still is angry on the basis with the with the unscathed, pure conventional nature of the mind. That is with the anger as itself, the anger part of it is only adventitious, right? But from the Vajrayana point of view, in terms of the afflictions or whatnot, the afflictions, when they arise, or afflictions, or any kind of a contaminated mindset, the very base is adventitious, compared with the subtlest clear mind. So that's why, except for the subtlest of the subtlest clear mind, except for that, none of the None of the mind states uh, 
is is non-adventitious. So adventitious not just with the afflictions, but even all the all other minds, except for the settlers, the settlers clear their mind, are all adventitious in that sense. They have a they all have a come and go history, but not this clearer, the settlers clear their mind. Where have you come from? When are you gonna end? Oh. So that's uh, what it is referring to. So in ordinary beings, the settle, settler, the settled clearer mind, or rather the settlest, right, clearer mind, settlers of the settlers clearer mind is neutral. It has never been and can never become non-virtuous. Again, like in the face of emptiness, no afflictions can effort to stand. Likewise, when the settlers clearer mind is manifest, Within that realm, no afflictions can ever, ever pop up. The reason for that partly has to do with how afflictions necessarily are generated on a gross level of mind. So it would have been already off limit way before the settler's clear mind manifests. Before that, there are these three settler's minds uh, namely of the near attainment, uh, radish increase, uh, blackish, near, oh, now, 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 Kalamba, whitish appearance, and the last one is the uh, blackish, um, near attainment. Even even by then, also all the uh, afflictions would have been already subsided, not eradicated, but subsided. So then the oh yeah so so it has never been and can never become non-virtuous. However, by engaging in special yogic practices, it can be transformed into a virtuous state. From this perspective, too, we see that defilements are not inherent in the nature of the mind. So, what are these special yogic practices mentioned here? Apparently, here with clearer mind, the subtlest clearer mind, innate subtlest clearer mind, having been brought up here, in in parallel with that, the yogic. Uh, practices would uh, involve advanced Vajrayana yogic practices. Because we are right now speaking of uh, transforming the subtlest clearer mind into, into virtuous mind. Once it becomes virtuous, there is more possibility that it will continue to be virtuous. Virtue, virtue sticks. In the Buddhist, in the Buddhist context, virtue sticks. Compassion sticks. Kindness sticks. Not the afflictions. However, they may look like they are stuck, or we are stuck in it, or they are, they are kind of 
what do you call, uh, built into us. They just barely latch on. <laughs> we are the ones to be, to be uh, blamed. We gave them the support. <laughs> we said, you are good, you are right, our sector, right? From all corners, you say, you are right, you are never wrong, you are right. That gives them some uh, moral <laughs> strength in kind of hanging on. But uh, when they are exposed, they begin to shake. And then when you pursue it further and further, uh, in the face of this, this exposure of their ungrounded inter-reality, of their being ungrounded, of their being baseless, then their base very much shakes. And then on, in place of it, understanding of emptiness, which is in line with reality, it becomes stronger and stronger and stronger. And then because it is supported by reality, it has this ability to stick with the mind. And thus almost mingle with it to the point of almost becoming its second nature now. Because of the strength of the truth. Because of its being in sync with reality. So that's how this neutral mind can become virtuous, can adopt those and never lose them. So, and so, so here we are speaking of engaging not just with the mind, but with the innate clearer mind, and thus such yogic practices would have to be included, those included in the Vajrayana practices, where we, where we, what do you call, enlist, where we enlist added physiological forces into our spiritual journey. Whereas in Sutra, we just limit it only to working with the mind, so much with the body, let alone its subtle physiological components. But in the Vajrayana, as taught by the Buddha, in this age, to this world, it is in, in uh, accordance with our physiological makeup. And this Vajrayana practice doesn't fit in other world. That's what I was pointing to when I said, even Dhammapada said, when the question was, what difference is there in the fundamental teaching, not in every teaching? If the questioner would have asked, in every teaching that you taught, okay, yes, at least from a Tibetan Buddhist perspective, yes, yes, some Buddhas touch Vajrayana, some Buddhas don't touch. Not because they do not know, but because no one would be benefiting from. And then even if they do touch on Vajrayana, the one they teach in other world systems is different than the world taught in this world system with the kind of a body we have. That makes sense, perfect sense. When it comes to mind, it says there's no change, no difference in the teachings of the Buddhas because the fundamental teachings are dealing with the mind as presented in the Sutra. That should be applicable to all sentient beings. So long as one is 
endowed with the mind and and has the problem arising from it, etc. The only way to address is facing the mind and and addressing it. In that respect, yes, fully tame the mind by, in the meantime, engaging in virtuous actions and staying away from non-virtuous actions, but in the, at the same time, having one's eye in taming the mind and pushing it to the extent possible. Right? So, so, surely, the, uh, the yo special yogic practices expressed here in, in conjunction with the subtlest inner clear mind has to do with the practices in the Vajrayana. And within that, the highest yoga, Tantra would have the most complete uh, additional practices. It's because of the additional practices, additional forces it brings in, it makes a difference in how long it takes to do the job. Not by not by skipping how much merit you accumulate, but how much time you spend in accumulating those merit. Otherwise, when we speak of yogic practices, it doesn't necessarily have to be always. Uh, yeah, it doesn't necessarily have to be always uh, vajrayana. Yog, yog, yogic practice in the West, it's. One has to be yogi to have to do yogic practice. Right? Is that how you understand? <laughs> or maybe people are yogi if they have yogic practice. Uh, but somehow it seems to be associated with associated with someone who doesn't look neat. <laughs> maybe someone who has a mangled hair or dirty and and in rags. Well, not not really doing the daily. Daily checkups, daily carings, but with divorce all the time in the practice, so much so that they stink around. <laughs> so, what I meant is yogic practice can be referred to even uh, other cultivations of, of love, compassion, great compassion, of course. Understanding emptiness, those all included in yogic, so called yogic practice. But here it is definitely referring to the highest yoga tantra practices because it is speaking in tandem with the innate clear light mind, which is never even spoken of in this whole of Sutra. Buddha is so capable of keeping quiet, he just shares where it is needed, doesn't oversay things doesn't show off. Are these special yogic practices unique to practitioners who wish to become a Buddha? Or would arhats practice these special practices as well? For arhats, these will be useless. Or these would be rather a distraction. Spending time where one should not be. It will only make one's journey longer. It's like... <laughs> Oh, quickly that. It's it's better for them to just go straight. It's not required. It would be a distraction. And it would have to be someone wishing to become Buddha. Because this is in the spirit of the Mahayana. Vajrayana is in the spirit of the Mahayana practice. It is rather an advanced, more advanced 
uh, was it the Mahayana practice. If these yogic practices are unique to those wishing to become Buddha, are they related to clearing cognitive obscurations from the mind stream? Yes. Because it involves it it involves harnessing. Right? Harnessing. It involves harnessing the innate clearer mind and employing it on the path. And thus with that innate clearer mind in in conjunction with emptiness as its object, it becomes a very powerful tool. Not only not only the object is emptiness, the furthest mode of existence, the, the deepest reality of everything, right? But at the same time, the one that is handling it, the subjective agent that is handling it, is the best you could ever, ever imagine. The two combined together becomes a very, very potent antidote. And thus, with the innate clearer mind as the as the subjective mind, with which the objective clearer objective clear light, which is the emptiness, is conjoined, then yes, it becomes a very strong, very powerful. Uh, Time-effective, of course, cost-effective. Time-effective means to clearing cognitive obscurations from mind state. In what ways a virtuous fundamental clear-led mind different than the fundamental inner clear-led mind that is only neutral? That's very interesting. This is making a distinction between our natural clear mind, inner, inner clear mind, that would naturally manifest at the time of death. At the, at the, I should rather say, at the point of death, not time of death, not time of death, but point of death. At the point of death, after having gone through the dissolution stages, and when we have hit that death point, of course, it could itself be extended and kind of. Uh, enduring, but compared with others, it would be a point. There, the innate, the natural innate clear mind would have manifest. But we are so untrained, unhabituated, un, uh, untrained and unready for that, that it just slips by. We don't even notice it is there. Whereas, when we engage in the respective Vajrayana practices, where you deliberately, intentionally bring it to manifest, rather than having to wait until die, until we die, and and then when we succeed in making it manifest, and then employing it with 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 kind of collaborating with with employing it or kind of making it uh kind of uh making it uh combined 
with the unmistaken understanding of emptiness as its object. Right? And then kind of sustain that and then strengthen that further and further. Then in the face of that, the 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 grip of the grasping at inherent existence really, really suffers. It's like now it's so slippery. What has happened to my grip? It was lashing so well, like a like a suction, right? But now what's happening? Somebody has put grease in my hand. Now I'm slipping down, slipping down, slipping down. That's what actually happens. Uncontrollably so. Right? So there's a difference. The Natural clear-led mind is, of course, as innate as the the cultivated one. Y- yet, over which we have hardly any control, let alone employing it on the path, we even don't notice it is there. Let alone calling it in and offering tea and having discussion. We just don't even see it. It's gone. Whereas, of course, and this is difficult, that's the reason why the whole generation stage is a way of training in it, beginning with imagination. You train in it. You imagine having generated the, this, this, the clear light mind of bliss. You imagine, you don't have, you imagine. Right? And then in the imagination, you employ that with emptiness. And who knows how, how correct the level of understanding emptiness one may have. So one may have to do, do with make-do things, right? In the imagination in the first place. And as one was, becomes better and better and better and better, and then through our studies, supports, discussion, and we become more and more focused, more and more... Uh, yeah, more and more focus in our imagination. And eventually, eventually it's almost like a snake kind of giving off its skin, right? That the, that the, that the uh, artificial imagination part of it kind of leaves and it gives way to an actual cultivation of it. But it takes time and special effort. So it's not something that we can just merely wish for and have it, but has to be trained into. And that's the reason why in the, the whole of the Vajrayana practice is divided into generation stage and completion stage. Most of the generation stage, we are dealing with our imaginations. And then at the tip of completion stage, so we are now beginning to actualize, realize, realize in the in this very strict English term, I like it, having become real. Now it's becoming real, right? Not realized in the sense of understanding it, but real, real, becoming real. Okay, so there was that question answered. <laughs> Yes. So from this perspective too, we see that it is possible to cultivate powerful antidotes. Now, one thing 
to support this understanding that yes, these negativities, how much they are to be blamed, they are to blame for these sufferings, confusions, and pitfalls that they leave us with. No matter how powerful and strong they may be, they have powerful antidotes against them. So, powerful antidotes which are rooted in reality, that makes what the antidotes powerful. Not only it is, not only it is diametrically opposite to the way grasping the inherent existence, I mean, holds, but at the same time, it is rooted in reality. Because of that, it has an added strength in being an antidote to the afflictions. It's a matter of making effort and putting effort and spending time. It almost looks like we have been around, from a Buddhist perspective, we have been around, have never ever given rise to, have never ever tested. Oh, we have tested so much, so many varieties of foods here, right? But we don't seem to have, in this very long stay in long sojourn in samsara, we never have tested wisdom, understanding, emptiness directly. I mean, it, it seems like we have been just squandering our time with trivial things, making ourselves so busy with trivial things, of which the impact only lasts just a short form, and at most until we die, and then gone. Not until we die, or close to dying. When we're on the deathbed, then so many of the things that we have achieved and worked so hard have no use at all. Their use even stops there. That's how we are left with nothing. But if any dharma practice we have done, then that's left with us. Otherwise, all the rest just stops short there. Yeah, all of these other achievements, achievements in the superficial sense, in the worldly sense. We are really, really lucky to be here. I really, really thank you for opening this community to me. My world, my world has changed, almost have changed 180 degrees. And I really, really admire your company, everyone aspiring to, to transform one's mind. We may be same with others in being still under the sway of afflictions, but one thing different, we recognize afflictions as afflictions, that's one. Another, we recognize afflictions are to be addressed, not cultivated. That makes a big, huge difference. And being in the company of such is so inspiring, so inspiring. It's, it's, I think this is, What a samsaric place can get the button, the best.
I mean, it can no samsari place can get better than this here. It's like a mini pure land, <laughs> mini pure islands in samsara, and it it is rest on us to not spoil it for ourselves, for others, and be support to each other in this quest of addressing in in in, the, in this quest of addressing the afflictions by holding them accountable. None but them, within them, the culprits, the main culprits, in the form of self-centeredness and grasping its inner existence. And self-centeredness, I mean, needs to be, I cannot emphasize this more. It needs to be identified clearly. It is, as I think, is mindset of prioritizing oneself over others. It may not come in this very pronounced, clear form that I am better than others, I am more important than others. It may not come. It may come like, oh, I'll have it rather than others. It will come in so many subtle ways, but nonetheless, at the bottom line, it is prioritizing oneself over others. That is so confusing. That's like, that is the mindset I should have. That's how I can be protected. But no. It works, but totally opposite way. The more protective you become, the less spacious you become, the more con congested you become. The more congested one becomes, the more inflated one becomes also. <laughs> inflated in the sense that one, one now runs out of any space to kind of really be, to feel easy. Always bumping again again, because one has inflated, right? So. And, and likewise, the same goes with the grasping at inherent existence. It needs to be nailed up. It cannot be left, left out just because it is difficult. In a way, our ultimate hope, of course, with Bodhicitta and others, all this, ultimate hope in a Bodhisattva at, uh, realizing the, the awakening or an arhat realizing liberation hinges on it. So, before we end, for the next, next, if I may ask for one, two minutes more, I'll speak on the nature of mind. Why nature, the nature of mind in, in, in relation to its purity? in the conventional sutra, conventional sense, not in the innate sense. There, it says that qualities like compassion and others can be developed infinitely, which I said seems to really share uh, with, uh, with, with afflictions also, except they differ in one aspect. So what I mean, what I'm saying is that unless we make, make, unless we guard ourselves, our afflictions can in, can develop infinitely. If we dwell on it, it shares the same same stable base. I think others may d disagree with me on this, but I think because the the the, the, the reasoning that the scriptures put forth for Compassion to be possible, to be generated, to be developed infinitely, 
name, namely on two bases. One, because it has a stable base, stable base in the set, in the form of the clear, mere clear and knowing nature. It's never going to lose it. Whereas, and thus, no effort, no effort, no mishap can ever sever the continuum of the mind. So, in that respect, even afflictions share the same, same basis. Now, the other one is, which I didn't mention last time, the other one is, minds have this quality of when you, the more you develop, the more the more you generate it, the more used to, familiar you become, the more easy it becomes to arise the next time. Although it will take a while till it gets to that point. But one has to struggle, 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 put forth, put effort, effort, effort. Eventually, mind comes to, say, the cultivation of love and compassion comes to a point where all you need is any condition that triggers you. And right then you would have generated greater compassion without having to go through the whole process all along. So that that is called, that is a special quality of mind. And that is not present in the physical things. As I was saying, uh, while speaking of this, the scientists, scientists, their discoveries, they do not have to work from the very very start. They could verify the previous research and then start from there. Right? Whereas, and likewise is the case, likewise is the same case with our cultivation. When it comes to our own personal cultivation of love, compassion, and whatnot, however, effort, however much effort we have made, and then and then through that, if we have attained certain point, say in the case of the understanding of emptiness, to the point of having developed shamatha and vipassana combined understanding of, of emptiness, then it's, it's, it's like now it's never going to be lost, and nor does it ever need any exertion in kind of generating it. A mere call, it would be enough to kind of right away be there in that, in mid, what do you call, in that directly understanding emptiness. So is the case with love and compassion. Likewise, is the case with anger, jealousy, greed, attachment. The more one has indulged in it, all it needs is just a slight reminder. That's all. And that's the quality. But then, on in the case of the Positive qualities like love, compassion, etc., and then they understand emptiness. They have the support of the truth. And that's what makes it stick with the mind, although its original nature is neutral, whereas others just fall off. Okay, I think uh, we should call it a session.